October 17, 1981. It's a year and a half before the USFL's first season begins. Twelve men, all white, all middle-aged or older, gather around a large rectangular glass table inside a conference room at San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel. It's the unofficial first full United States Football League ownership meeting. If you've got money, power, and an ego, this is the place to be. The league's founder, David Dixon, feels excited. He's sitting at the head of the room. Surrounding him are a dozen of the wealthiest, most powerful men in American business. Some of the faces he recognizes. Some he does not. There's a carafe of coffee and a tray of pastries. They chat about football, about life, about industry. They're a bit edgy. Will this league work? Hard to say. But they're all here, ready to talk about spring football, salary structures, and the hows and whys of running a successful league. The meeting is scheduled to begin at 12.30. And at 12.35, 12 of the 13 chairs are filled. The only man missing is the one who agreed to purchase and run the New York, New Jersey franchise. Dixon is somewhat embarrassed. It's not supposed to be this way. I'm sure he's just running late. Let's give him an extra 10 minutes, all right? Well, the minutes pass, and Burl Bernhardt, a silver-haired man in a dark suit, pipes up. Dave, this guy we're waiting for, who is he again? He's a successful real estate developer in Manhattan. Now, I haven't met him yet, but he has a lot of money and enthusiasm, and you know what? There's a telephone in the center of the table. It's beige and bulky with a half dozen buttons. Franchise owner Alfred Taubman reaches over and presses one. And another. Then another. Finally, it occurs to a man worth more than $500 million that the flashing button is the one to push. Taubman pushes it, and the ringing stops. Hello? Hello? Yes, can you guys hear me? We can. Who, who is this? Oh, hey, it's, it's Donald. Donald Trump. Donald, Donald, we're all waiting here for you. Where are you? Right. Well, I'm not going to be able to make it. In, in fact, I can't be part of your project. Uh, things are just going unbelievably for me. I have this casino project, and it's going to be big, really big. Lots of money in it. But I'll be watching to see how your league goes. Okay, bye. But that will hardly be the last time the United States Football League will hear from Donald J. Trump. I'm Wondery. I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. The USFL is coming to life. Team owners are anteing up, and the search for talent is in high gear. Coaches and general managers who don't have a ton of money to throw around are taking big risks on players. Maybe too big. This is Episode 3, A Challenge to the King. By now, the fledgling league has done a surprisingly good job at establishing itself as a sports brand on the rise. The league is broken down into three divisions, 
The Pacific Division includes the Oakland Invaders, the Los Angeles Express, the Denver Gold, and the Arizona Wranglers. The Central Division is home to the Michigan Panthers, the Chicago Blitz, the Tampa Bay Bandits, and the Birmingham Stallions. And the Atlantic Division features the Philadelphia Stars, the Boston Breakers, the Washington Federals, and the New Jersey Generals, who, after Trump's brusque departure, are now owned by an Oklahoma oil man named J. Walter Duncan. ESPN and ABC have agreed to carry USFL games, and a bevy of big-name head coaches create early credibility. The rosters are sort of a mishmash. Each team carries 40 active players, and there are definitely some exclamation point names. Obviously, Herschel Walker is the league's marquee player, but with the exception of 20 or so recent college standouts, the USFL rosters look thin. They're largely composed of Canadian League refugees, average college players, and over-the-hill NFL has-beens clawing for another paycheck. As opening day arrives, neither the USFL nor the NFL know just what to expect. On the afternoon of March 6, 1983, at exactly 1 p.m., ABC's viewers tune in to see the first USFL game. Hello, I'm Jim Lampley, and I'll be honest with you. I will wait to see how many of you are that anxious to see football in spring, but everything I've seen and heard in the past three weeks leads me to believe that this experiment, the United States Football League, has a great chance of flying. Clearly, in my view, there are enough pro football players to go around for this league to field a credible product. Everyone inside the NFL offices is watching the game, too, although they're loath to admit it. Roselle, the NFL's commissioner, is a nervous wreck. He's been constantly reassuring the NFL's owners that the USFL is a joke. But now? Well, now, he's not sure. Roselle smokes camel after camel. He stares at the screen, and then it hits him. Wait, is that all the people they drew? Indeed, if you look closely, many of the fans are actually raindrop-coated plastic chairs. Only 38,000 spectators enter a building that holds more than 56,000. The Federals release hundreds of green and white balloons to announce the coming of a new era of Washington football. And the pouring rain sinks most of them, and they're stomped into the mushy turf. In a dreary, uninspired game, the Chicago Blitz destroy the Washington Federals 28-7. The rest of the opening day contests are little better. Even Herschel Walker's debut against the Los Angeles Express is a dud. Reporters gather around the head coach of the Express for comment. Coach Fairbanks, why did you only run Herschel 16 times? He's not ready. But doesn't the USFL need him to make a splash? He's the league's biggest name. The coach takes a long drag from his cigarette. I'm a football coach, not a marketing guy. Don't ask me that sort of BS question, okay? Despite generally poor, sloppy showings, the first week generates a solid television rating, and there's reasonable attendance at games. The USFL's commissioner doles out upbeat comments to reporters. Everything's going better than expected, he boasts. By the fourth week, however, optimism has dulled. When David Dixon envisioned a spring league, 
he didn't factor in the impact of bad weather. Football played in the snow is quaint, maybe even inspiring. Rain, however, carries no such glory. Watching football in the rain sucks, and playing football in the rain also sucks. And it rains a lot in the springtime. There are six games scheduled for the fourth week, and all six get rained on. The result? Empty stadiums and unhappy fans. But the USFL knows it can't just cancel games. It would hurt their momentum. In April, the Arizona Wranglers and the Birmingham Stallions are set to play in Alabama. But there's a forecast of freezing rain and gusty winds. Marvin Warner, the owner of the Birmingham Stallions, frantically calls USFL Commissioner Chet Simmons. Chet, we have to cancel this game. I can't do that, Marvin. ASPN is in town. Canceling would... Yeah, it would look amateurish. Have you ever been to Alabama in the freezing rain? I have not. Yeah, well, neither have I, and I live here. Uh, I'm sorry, but the game goes on. The game, attended by roughly 1,500 poor souls, is played in monsoon-like winds that hit 50 miles per hour. Hail pelts the players. Spectators dash for cover. It's an embarrassment that becomes national news. One headline reads, Mother Nature 1, USFL 0. As the weeks pass, attendance and ratings drop. For Dixon, none of this is completely unexpected. Before the season started, Dixon warned owners repeatedly not to panic. He reassured them this is a slow-growth business, one that builds gradually. Now, what Dixon fears most are owner egos. It's one thing for owners to commit to an ideal of one for all and all for one, to an ideal of developing a league together for the benefit of the collective. But what he's always feared is a rogue owner coming along and saying, screw it, I have money and I want to win now. On March 18th, 1983, Alfred Tobman comes along and says, screw it. I have money, and I want to win now. It's midway through the season, and Tobin's Michigan Panthers are stuck in third place in the Central Division. Season tickets won't sell, and the massive Pontiac Silverdome often feels like an abandoned shopping mall. Tobin is a billionaire. He's not used to kicking back and accepting mediocrity. So, he forks over $2.4 million dollars to sign three former Pittsburgh Steeler offensive linemen. From a football standpoint, the acquisitions make perfect sense. The Panthers' offensive line is brutal. For the USFL, however, it's a disaster. The league's been trying to keep spending lean. This big outlay of cash blows all of that up. John Bassett, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, is apoplectic when he hears the news. He immediately calls Tobman, a man he barely knows. Al, this is John Bassett. I own the Bandits. What the hell are you thinking? All that money for three offensive linemen? What can I say? I want to win. I get that. But now every owner who held off signing a big-name quarterback or running back is going to look at this and say, why should I go by the league code when Al Tobman isn't? Why shouldn't I pay for a good quarterback when this guy's spending millions on offensive linemen? Look, my quarterback is getting killed. He needs protection. 
This league needs protection. We can't do this. I don't know what to say. I'm looking out for me. Exactly. Exactly. July 17, 1983. The first USFL championship. The Michigan Panthers faced the Philadelphia Stars at Denver's Mile High Stadium. The afternoon is off to a glorious start. Sunny skies, no rain, close to 60,000 fans on hand to witness the historic title clash. Before the game, Miller Beer sets up an enormous tent in the parking lot. There, a fleet of young, peppy, college-aged women in form-fitting Miller t-shirts hand out free paper cups filled with beer. A sign reads, one sample per person. And no one pays it any mind. But by kickoff time, intoxicated football fans are stumbling toward their seats. The beer tent will go down as one of the worst ideas in USFL history. With the game wrapping up and the Panthers in the lead, USFL Commissioner Chet Simmons holds court in the press box. A New York Daily News reporter scores the first question. Chet, how do you feel about all of this? Well, the NFL could only dream of this type of Super Bowl. I mean, look at this. A close game, a crowded house. You know, starting a league isn't easy, but we deserve this sort of a... uh, What in the world is that? He looks out the press window. About 1,500 spectators, many of them drunk, storm the field and shake the goalposts. They're trying to tear them down. The stadium is packed with cops. Before Simmons can complete another thought, he sees dozens of cops macing fans as a fleet of police dogs tear at clothing and limbs. The USFL title game has turned into a blood sport. No, no! One man goes out on a stretcher. Twelve are arrested. Reporters return from the field with their eyes burning from the spray. The scent of mace fills the press box. The commissioner sighs. Maybe the, maybe the free beer wasn't such a great idea. The following morning, readers of the New York Post are greeted by the headline, Wild Fans in Ugly Clash After Panthers Cop USFL Title. But far from Denver, inside a gold skyscraper with his name splashed across the front entranceway, a New York businessman is plotting both his return to the USFL and his coming out party as a man not to be trifled with. August 1983. The USFL's debut season is over. Some things went well. Some things went terribly. Television ratings slightly exceeded overall projections. That went well. The ratings, however, decreased week by week. That went terribly. Herschel Walker wound up running for a league best. That went well. But his team, the Generals, went 6-12. and 12. That went terribly. The Denver Gold hosted packed stadiums. That went well. But the Boston Breakers had the worst fan attendance in the league. Not great. The championship game, Michigan over Philadelphia, went well. The aftermath of the championship game, cops macing fans, 
was not the scene the USFL was going for. And all but one team, the Denver Gold, lost money. Losses ranged from $1 million to $6 million. This should not be such a big deal for men with remarkably deep pockets, but it is. The Al Tobmans of the world aren't used to financial failure, and this feels like financial failure. That's why, when the owners gather together for one of their regular meetings inside a conference room in a Chicago hotel, they make a once unfathomable decision. For its second season, in 1984, the USFL will expand from 12 teams to 18, adding franchises in Pittsburgh, Jacksonville, San Antonio, Tulsa, Memphis, and Houston. History suggests this is a terrible idea. You expand after five, six, maybe 10 seasons. You wait until you've established your brand and the money's rolling in and people are clamoring to watch your games. To expand after a single season? Well, not only is it unprecedented, it's insane. But the owners are scared. The first season's losses were unbearable. But each new franchise will be required to fork over $6 million to the league. Six new teams means $3 million for each team. The current owners desperately want the money. So, fear of expanding too quickly will be suppressed for dollars. Lots of dollars. There's more grumbling about money at the meeting, but the dozen owners know they'd rather stay the course. Except for one man. The owner of the New Jersey Generals, J. Walter Duncan, has had enough. He hates the flights from his home in Oklahoma City to New Jersey. Fellas, I'm out. I'm tired of the travel, and I'm just not seeing the payoff. Duncan puts the Generals on the market for $8 million, hoping maybe a bidding war will result in, oh, $8.3 million. Maybe, if everything goes right, $8.5 million. Ultimately, only one man makes an offer. The same New York City real estate developer who initially planned on owning the Generals has returned. Walter, it's Donald. I can pay $10 million for the Generals, but not a penny more. <clears throat> well, uh, I guess that'll have to do. On the morning of September 22, 1983, dozens of local and national reporters gather inside a 58-story building on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. They are shepherded to the atrium. It has gold walls, a gold floor, and a gold ceiling. As the reporters take their seats, a young woman in a trim suit signals to the live musicians to stop. She pushes a button on the wall, which turns off the atrium's waterfall. And then, they wait. 20 minutes pass, and the crowd starts getting restless. This is entirely deliberate. Then, the new owner of the New Jersey Generals appears and steps toward the microphone. Here, inside this gold-plated room, Donald Trump makes his grand self-introduction to professional sports. A guy like me loves excitement. I wanted to get into the USFL at the beginning, but I was just too busy. But now the opportunity came again, and I had to go for it. I love this league. I love everything it's doing. 
We're in this to win championships. It's serious business. I'm a winner, and the generals will be winners. The session ends, and reporters start to pack up their cameras and equipment while Donald Trump retreats to his penthouse office. USFL Commissioner Chet Simmons turns to his second-in-command. What do you make of all of that? Uh, This has to be a good thing. The league's contract with ABC demands a franchise be located in or near the Big Apple. The sale of the Generals to seemingly steady ownership ensures that won't be a problem. And yet, something about Trump rubs the commissioner the wrong way. The boastfulness, the arrogance, the all-about-me way of speaking. Something about that guy is off. I'm not so sure we can trust this Donald Trump. Next time on Business Wars, the USFL surrenders itself to the will of its newest owner, and Donald Trump pounces. His plan isn't merely to create one of America's best football teams. It's to establish himself as a pro football powerhouse. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. We hope you will. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us? Go over to Wondery.com survey and answer a few short questions. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Jeff Perlman wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.